Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Hi everyone. Once again, on behalf of the Canadian Journal of Surgery, I hope that all of our listeners are staying healthy amidst this pandemic. We're going to keep on putting out content for you. In this episode, we interviewed Dr. Phil Dawes. Dr. Dawes is a trauma surgeon at the Vancouver General Hospital and is also a military surgeon. We talked to him about what it's like to be a military surgeon. And more broadly, we asked him to tell us what he's learned about leadership from having a unique perspective being in the military as well as being a trauma surgeon in the civilian setting. The discussion is extremely thought-provoking and I think you'll enjoy it. I'll start maybe with the same way I started with our colleague Scott Gamora and saying that your your training pathway um, or, or, or path traveled anyway is, is a little bit different than most and um, Specifically, you know, with, with your with your involvement with the military for for quite a while, I was wondering if you could tell us about how that came to be and and what your pathway was for for folks that don't know you well. Sure, uh, thanks, Chad. And um, uh, I guess before I answer that, I'll um, say uh, thanks for inviting me on. I'm I'm not uh, it's not falsely being modest when I feel really. Uh, humbled and almost embarrassed to be on this podcast. I'm not sure I, I merit the attention, but um, uh, but I'll do my best to make it a, a, a an interesting chat here. So, um, yeah, I guess it is a little different than uh, most people. There are certainly other uh, military surgeons in, in Canada, uh, general surgeons specifically, um, uh, and uh, some of us have similar paths, but mine uh, started in uh, in the military a long time before I kind of got into medicine. So, um, I, uh, I come from a, a, I guess a family that has a few people who've been in the military and it wasn't, um, my dad wasn't the great Santini from, uh, that Pat Conroy novel. He didn't, uh, he was the overbearing <laughs> military guy, but, um, uh, but he was in the military and I guess we, we looked up to him a lot and, uh, we all, uh, ended up, joining the military at, at different times and, and just because of different timing, different things we were doing, we uh, we ended up, my older brother and I in, in any case joined within a few months of each other and uh, I wanted to go to university so I, I did an undergrad degree at the military college in engineering and then I was an infantry officer for uh, eight years or so and even way back in high school I knew I was interested in medicine but um, uh I don't know, a military college seemed like kind of a neat thing to do. Uh, I was also, you know, I liked math and sciences and stuff, so engineering was interesting to me. My dad was a, a combat engineer, and uh, so I studied engineering, never used it for a day after undergrad, really, because uh, in the infantry, it's it's um, you don't use a lot of engineering for sure, a lot more of uh, just physical uh, stuff and, um, I guess, uh, a little more raw uh, leadership and planning and uh, tactics and stuff like that. Um, but because I, I knew at some point I wanted to go back, I, it was always in the back of my mind. And uh, over the years, I had to, on my own time, kind of 
you know, take correspondence courses to get all the prerequisites in line. I had to study for an MCAT and, um, I remember doing a, uh, finishing my, uh, organic chemistry degree. And uh, this was in, in the era of like faxes and stuff. And I was faxing my homework from uh, Afghanistan back to some guy in Athabasca university, um, uh, in the year before I finally got into med school. So, uh, yeah, so I, I had to apply, I think, three or four years to med school before they finally let me in. And um, uh, uh, University of Manitoba uh, were the, were the one, was the one school that was cool enough to let me come. And um, I had then had to be a GP because when you go uh, through medicine um, subsidized by the military, they want you to be a GP initially. And so uh, I did family medicine residency and then a couple of years as a GP. And um, I knew, I think pretty early that I didn't want to stick, stick, uh, in the military as a GP it was either get out of the army and, and be a practitioner GP, uh, in the community or do something else. Cause I just, I really wanted to be clinical. I'd spent all that time going back to school and unfortunately as a GP, they're kind of really pushing all kinds of administrative duties, which we all have to do at some point, but I didn't want to do exclusively, obviously. So, um, yeah, in 20, I think 2010, I was uh, back as a, as a resident in my late thirties, which made me cry sometimes, but, um, I finally sucked it up through there and uh, did a trauma fellowship here in Vancouver and, um, they, they hired me here. So, yeah. You know, it's a, it, it's amazing how many people that you and I know that, um, certainly I would consider stars and, and you, you're in that list as well, um, have had to persevere at various stages with regard to applications to whatever. It could be residency, it could be med school. Or whatever. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear you say that. Cause that's such a common, uh, you know, a common reality. And I think something that, you know, for folks who, who would look at you and say, oh, well, like I could walk into medical school and maybe should have walked into medical school. It's it's refreshing and honest to hear that, you know, you, you had to um, to keep trying as well. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's probably a good lesson for a lot of people. I'm, I'm, I don't know how many listeners would be at the stage where they're still applying to things, but um, uh, I think maybe it's because, uh, you know, what you're articulating about hearing that a lot is probably more a testament to the fact that uh, it's not the quality of any applicant that doesn't get in or does get in first try or anything. It's more just if you really want something uh, that maybe shows some kind of determination or that it's the right fit for you or that somehow deep down you know that that's the right uh, job for you in, in the end. So, yeah. Do you, do you think that being in the military has uh, kind of drawn you to being a trauma surgeon or do you think that would have uh, evolved naturally? It was certainly more prominent in my mind um i think there are uh, a couple things that um really um cemented the, the decision to to pursue that um um you know like the road to, to general surgery for instance I, I i as i alluded to i was pretty confident that family medicine wasn't really for me there's nothing i don't have anything against family medicine but um uh, I just, you know, wasn't really big on doing clinic all day. It wasn't uh, really for me. Um, and uh, so, you know, you, you run into a few people here and there that kind of, uh, you you just, you think, I, I really like to do what that guy or girl is doing. And uh, um, so as a family medicine resident, uh, I think I had to do it in second year. I was uh, on a general surgery service in Winnipeg and, uh, uh you know, one of my oldest mentors is a guy named Hugh Taylor, and he's not trauma. 
he's actually just he's a, a great MIS surgeon in in, in Winnipeg. But um, just his approach to um, to acute problems, his approach to life, his approach to his patients, and the way he spoke to his patients, and uh, just the way he balanced uh, a really busy. Um, clinical uh career with uh with his outside interests and everything was uh, really appealing to me and um so that got me interested in surgery and that got me applying pretty early on in the process of uh of my career and then for trauma i mean um uh i you know i have uh, some uh unfortunately a lot of kind of family exposure to to uh, trauma um and uh, that kind of, I guess, might have pushed it uh, towards it. I, I think just having been in the infantry and having lost uh, friends and family members overseas, uh, if I'm not at the pointy end fighting the fight, I think I always wanted to, to help the guys that were as much as possible. And in my mind, nothing would help more than being a, a trauma surgeon. So that was kind of where that, I think, uh, came from in large part. Yeah, that makes makes total sense, I think. You know, you, whether you're in the military up front or, or or really have had no exposure to it at all, the whole spectrum, certainly when you start to pursue a trauma fellowship, you're intimately engaged with, with lots of folks like you, whether they're special forces medics that are training side by side with you or, yeah. or other other fellows like you, you know, it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. Um, one of the things, Phil, that it's very clear to all of us that know you and, and to your partners uh, <laughs> quietly behind your back is you're, you're clearly known as a, as a leader. And I think, you know, I've certainly heard that from the residents that you, that you teach and that are around you as well. So really from, from all, all, uh, all 360 sides, I think people describe you that. So, you know, my overriding comment, I guess, would be that in medicine, we have a lot of managers, mm-hmm. um, but that's very different from, at least in my mind, what a leader is. And probably the best talk I ever saw was given by Henri Boosmith, um, you know, the famous liver surgeon in, in mm-hmm. Europe one time. And he gave an entire hour-long, um, essentially presidential address about the differences between those two concepts. But I was curious how you how you view that, how you define them, and, and does the military side of leadership in any way uh, impact your view of it and impact how you deliver that concept uh, on a day-to-day basis? Um, yeah, wow, great, uh, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think leadership is uh, is uh, just a wonderful topic. Um, it's, I think it's interesting because um, I, it's certainly been spoken about and written about a lot more lately, I think, uh, in the last 20 years, 10, 20 years, people have started to study it and take courses on it and things like that. And that, that's not stuff that I don't think was as mainstream outside the military was to take leadership courses for uh, corporate leaders and industry leaders and things like that. Um, because I think, as you pointed out, I think there was a lot of emphasis on managerial skills and, and not making that distinction between uh, leaders and and managers. So, um, and I think it's a critical distinction to make. Um, you know, I mean, uh, managers, um, I like to, to dumb it down and sort of think as managers as people who who um, control specific resources and can facilitate things happening. Uh, but the leaders are, are not tied to any one position or any authority or any um, any resources necessarily. They can be people who have all those things at their fingertips, but they don't have to be. Uh, you can have, you know, a resident, a junior resident can be a really good leader. Um, 
uh, a nurse can be a, uh, who's not in a leadership role can can be a really a big leader. It doesn't it's not tied to position. It's just it's it's a certain I guess um, set of attributes that that allow you to to make changes. And um, um, I think the other reason it's interesting is that I think a lot of leadership is kind of can be. Uh, it's a it's a form I think of you know some form of emotional intelligence and there's some stuff that's difficult to teach and things that come naturally to some people, but I think because of all this interest in it, there's there's certainly some things that can be learned and uh, repeated and taught. So um, yeah, I mean I don't know in the, in the military we do talk about it a lot, uh, but we also get to just see it uh, in very raw forms, and I think kind of seeing is. Uh, seeing and following is sometimes some of the best ways to to learn uh, things, and I, I, I'm flattered that you say that uh, that that's your impression, that that's other people's impression uh, of me. Um, but it's not something that I'm acutely aware of. I, I think I try to practice certain principles, but um, um, I don't, you know, walk around telling people I'm a leader or or thinking that on a daily basis. But uh, if if that's the uh, the effect, then uh, then I'm flattered. Yeah. What what are what are some of the, the the techniques or the or the tricks that you might use to you know as a leader to engage folks that maybe are are less engaged, whether that's maybe a trainee or whether that's a nurse manager on a given you know, on the trauma yeah. ward or or those sort of things. Well, it, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, you can you can tell somebody to do something, uh, and that's kind of you know, there's all kinds of you Google leadership and uh, you go into Google images and you'll get all kinds of these posters that have all these things. And a lot of them are actually pretty true, but you know, you you can have the authority to, to tell somebody to do something, but if you really want them to buy in, you gotta, it's about relationship building. Right. So, um, and I think the way to, to get people on board, it, it's not at all about, you know, being the most popular person, but you do, there are certain elements, uh, foundational elements of relationship that you need to have with somebody if they're going to buy in and follow. Uh, and I think the basic ones are, uh, that they need, there, there's this sort of, uh, uh, element of vulnerability. They need to believe, uh, that you're going to admit when you're wrong, uh, and that, um, uh, that you you know um, when you make mistakes, and that you're not going to be this uh, this guy who's going to go around and say call everybody on their shit. But the minute somebody calls you on something, that you you deny that it's your fault and deflect blame. And similarly, you know, kind of this leading from the front, as my dad would always say, you got to share in some of the hardship. And that doesn't mean as a staff that you're going to write all the orders and dictate every OR note. Uh, but you got to do it sometimes, and you got to do some of the heavy lifting sometimes. Um, and you got to share the blame. If something goes wrong, nobody hates working with the guy more than the one who says, oh, you know, that common bile duct injury was because the resident wasn't holding the camera right. I mean, that's yeah. just, everybody knows that's BS. And um, and even the guy saying it, I'm sure, knows it's BS. But that that goes a long way to showing everybody in your team that you're not you're not there for anyone but yourself, right? So those are probably two of the big ones is just having this, um, developing uh, this mutual trust and um, and kind of leading from the front, as, as I like to say. And because it's surgery, I think there are a couple other things that you need. I mean, you kind of you can't get away from competency in in medicine and certainly in surgery. So you, it's hard to be a clinical leader if you're if you're not very technically apt. Um, um, 
uh, you know, you, you got to be good at your job, I think, to, to maintain some sort of uh, credibility uh, amongst your, your learners and the people who are following you and stuff like that. And probably the last thing, and it's kind of a motherhood thing, but I think it's really important is just um, is to to treat people respectfully. Again, not it's not popularity, it's not being the the funniest guy or the the funnest guy, or but if you you know uh, if you badmouth uh, people uh, behind their back or you you know you you knock that other service that isn't providing a great service uh, around your around your learners they're going to kind of wonder what you're saying when you're not around, when they're not around. So uh, I think just uh, kind of basic things like that go a long way. And in, in my opinion, in kind of um, developing that trust so that people are willing to follow you uh, when you do uh, want to make changes and things like that. So Yeah, I couldn't, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the, the vulnerability is certainly a huge issue and that it's interesting the cultures of in this, in this case, not businesses, but hospitals really vary from place to place in that regard. Yeah. You know, some places really struggle with that and other places do it remarkably well. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't speak for the whole hospital because I've only been working here for uh, three years or so, but I certainly I find uh, our, our group here is uh, um, pretty, pretty good about that. I mean, uh, whenever I... <laughs> I, I've uh, I've presented my underbelly f- uh, several times, and uh, people have been pretty darn good about it. So um, uh, they've been very supportive, and uh, and that just I think shows their leadership and and how much I trust them to to expose all my uh, all my weaknesses and stuff. So yeah, it's it's such a privileged place to to be. You know what what you describe when you can be vulnerable. Um, when you can be enthusiastic and, you know, at the end of the day, when you have the right mix of of folks around you day to day, it's, it, it makes, you know, work uh, unbelievably fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I feel pretty, pretty lucky. I think um, uh, I told you when, when I, when I last saw you uh, here in Vancouver, just how lucky I feel to be here. Our, our group is uh, uh, pretty extraordinary and, um, uh, in so many ways, like everybody's great to work with, but, um, there are differing opinions, which is, is only healthy. And, uh, you don't want, you know, six people who think exactly the same, because then you, you can just, uh, group think your way into trouble. Sometimes we have, yeah, uh, d- sure. dissenters who, who are healthy, you know, critical thinkers or, or dissenters for sure, who will commonly uh, question what we're doing and why we're doing something. And, um, and uh you know more often than not they're right in in questioning the the majority of us um so i think there's just this great uh um healthy balance we actually we like each other <laughs> on rare instances is where we can get out and uh, love it. uh have some sort of uh you know excuse uh, use work as an excuse like a research dinner or something like that we actually enjoy each other's company quite a bit so um, yeah, no, I feel unbelievably lucky to be working here at uh, VGH for sure. Yeah. For those of us who have never seen what it's like to be deployed and be on a military mission as a surgeon or as a physician, can you tell us what it's like to actually be working in the field? Is it anything like the movies or is that totally misrepresentative? <laughs> I guess it depends which movie. Um, it's not like Mash. Uh, I uh, I wish I had enough uh, resources to make a uh, a still, um, or that I was as cool as Alan Alda. 
Hawkeye, uh, but I'm not. Um, um, well, I, I guess it depends on on the uh, the mission. I, I wish I had um, you know uh, better stories to tell, and some of my colleagues here for sure uh, in uh, in Vancouver, particularly um, like Nathan uh, Garraway, for example, would have much better stories to tell than I would. But um, uh, I have been on a couple uh, shorter missions that haven't been super busy, uh, just because of the timing of things. I uh, I was in Afghanistan as a infantry officer, but not. Uh, I was never deployed there as a medical person. Uh, but it, you know, I mean, it, the the deployments are. Um, like, I'm sure they vary widely. Certainly, the two that I was on were quite different. But um, uh, it all depends on kind of the uh, the size of your deployment, like who, uh, how many resources you're deploying with. Um, as a surgeon, obviously, I mean, you're you're deploying with a minimum capability and uh, there's all kinds of nomenclature, but uh, simply put, uh, the smallest surgical, you know, within kind of Western nation uh, forces would be at, at very least kind of a surgeon and some kind of anesthetist, usually uh, two surgeons. Uh, certainly in Canada, our construct is normally to have a, a general surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon um, work together. So if it's a, you know, a primarily ortho case, then uh, I would assist uh, him or her, and if it's a primarily you know trauma or general surgery case, then uh, they would uh, assist me. Um, uh, so the, the bare bones would be that plus anesthesia, and then you'd have you know uh, I guess an OR tech, which is equivalent to a scrub nurse and uh, anesthesia, as I said, and maybe a critical care nurse, um, and you can just scale up from there. So you know. Some deployments, the when they at the height of Afghanistan, uh, Roll Three, it was called. That's a pretty big hospital. It had a CT scanner and it had uh, several uh, GPs who were kind of trained up to be the emerge docs in the trauma bays, and uh, you had a full complement of uh, a surgical suite. They, they had guest nations providing other surgical teams. Um, uh, obviously, we have ultrasound everywhere we go. We had uh, we have blood and. Uh, usually in the form of at least uh, PRBCs and plasma, and walking blood bank is a big thing to provide whole blood, and uh, so it, it it can vary. But uh, for us, for our all intents and purposes, I mean, at the minimum, like I said, it would be uh, a surgical team with anesthesia and a couple uh, supporting people, and that can be pretty light sometimes, which is potentially more interesting. Um, but um, um, obviously, the, the resources are going to limit a little bit what you're able to do. So uh, I'm not sure that answered your question. What's it really like? If it's, if it, the tours that I was on were a little bit on the lower volume side, so uh, it, I, I usually describe it uh, kind of like a minimum security prison. You can't really go anywhere. You you work out lots and uh, you eat three three square meals a day, and you kind of wait for something to happen. It's a, it's so interesting that you bring up the movie, <laughs> the the accuracy of the movie comments because. Uh, I, you know, I was just recently watching on YouTube J- Jocko Willink um, going through a bunch of these classic movies, whether it was Black Hawk Down or oh, yeah. Seals yeah. with Charlie Sheen in it. And yeah. he, was, he was critiquing all of the, uh, the accuracy of the special forces component yeah. in it. It'd be interesting to have you do that for medicine. It'd be great. That'd yeah. Be so funny. Well, one of the things you know, I was commenting to you that I that I recently reviewed in terms of a, a submitted peer review publication was a. Um, a paper I think that'll that'll be out in Journal of Trauma shortly that I was really enamored with. It looked at all of the the U.S. Special Forces uh, Special Operators deaths since September 11th, 01, 
And I was struck by two things. One is if you had asked me, you know, and again, in my fellowship, uh, certainly and, and intermittently thereafter, we, we kind of were side by side with a lot of those special forces medics. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I would have guessed the, the, the case fatality numbers would have been much, much higher than, than what they were, part one. And part two was, you know, it was really a paper about closing the loop in a, in a true morbidity and mortality way, really across the world, whether that was, you know, the Middle East and then Germany, as you know, and then all the way back to rehab in the U.S. Yeah. And how powerful and quickly you could make changes. And it was clear that they had done that. And their performance was something out of a movie, quite honestly. Like it was, it seemed to be a level of performance and success and outcome, uh, good outcomes that, that would be hard to even get close to in the civilian world. Does that surprise you? And, and what's your sense of why that can happen so well in that environment? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I can't wait to see this paper. But uh, I, I think um, there are a couple of things. So number one, um, uh with the right attitude, um, there's a great environment to, uh, you know, do the feedback loop and uh, critique your performance and make changes. And if the organization is dynamic and flexible enough, then then that can happen. Um, and it's not something I would normally <laughs> say of the of the military, but um, uh, uh, I don't think it's exclusive to the to the special forces that. You know the, the the medical branch was in, incredibly responsive overall, and it's uh, it's largely I think the study was largely driven by uh, the U.S. forces. But um, you know all you know all the the reemergence of uh, whole blood and one to one to one and use of tourniquets and all those things those are all kind of out of this last conflict, right? And and it happened extremely quickly as you as you mentioned. So. Um, it might be even more flexible in the uh, the soft environment. Uh, as, as a rule, the the special forces tend to um, really espouse kind of um, modern thinking and flexibility and the ability to make changes. As long as there's kind of good reasoning and evidence behind it, they're not going to wait for approval from some guy in cu- in a cubicle in uh, Washington. They're just going to make decisions that make sense and uh, make changes and they they uh, push leadership um, decisions down to the lowest level so that these, these things can happen. So that's number one. Um, you know, I, I think uh, there are probably a lot of other factors that would make the, the outcomes better. One would be um, just off the top of my head, I mean, uh, the protoplasm, like these guys ha- would have incredible physiologic reserve for the most part. Uh, not all special forces are the same or made the same, uh, but the, the top tier guys are, uh, you know, machines. They're, they're pro- literally pro athletes and better sometimes. So uh, they're going to be able to take uh, burdens of trauma probably more readily than, than other people. I think as a general rule, and again, uh, I haven't seen seen the, the stats to back this up, but typically the, the injuries would be, um, the, the, even though the point of injury can be in some pretty hostile environments, there would always be somebody with them. Uh, it would be rare that it would be like an unwitnessed trauma where somebody comes upon them. So there'd be a very quick response to any kind of uh, trauma. And even if that's 
you know, quote-unquote only TCCC, something is happening initially. Uh, so resuscitation is beginning right at the point of injury as opposed to waiting 15 minutes for EMS to show up uh, as we're accustomed to here. Um, yeah, so I, I think those would all uh, contribute. And then, you know, naturally having uh, reasonably far forward surgical suites, probably not a lot uh, shorter time than, than you would have in big urban centers, but certainly for, you know, rural trauma when you've got long transport times and things like that. Um, it would be much uh, much better when you've got those forward surgical suites as austere as they are. At least you have uh, somebody waiting with a, a knife uh, ready to get going on things. So, yeah, it makes so much sense. I mean, the the, the other thing that really struck me in, in terms of their description of that environment that you would know so well is again their ability to, to close that loop with honesty and and speed and with the really the singular goal it seemed like to to have more people survive. To do better, yeah. yeah. Just, just, just to I, keep doing better, right? You so, know, exactly. I mean, that's, sure, we all like to think that happens in healthcare that way, but it's there's a lot more people involved and it's a lot more complicated, it seems like, than that that sort of um, system that you've described. Like, it's, it's really impressive, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of comes back to... Um, you know, the, some of the, the, what we were saying earlier about just the, the vulnerability and everything. I mean, if you're going to really uh, try to make your performance better, um, it, it starts, you know, with our, our M&Ms not being a, a firing squad and just being like, look, this is what happened. And uh, I, sure, I might have obviously done this wrong, but uh, is there anything, am I missing something? Like, did is there something else I should have done or whatever? And that, when you lay yourself out like that, I mean, it's it's a bit awkward at first, but you're in the right group of people who are going to just listen to you and uh, uh, give you the honest goods, um, it makes it a lot easier. And um, and if it's not in the context of an M&M, uh, I think those groups, the special forces, are pretty well known for just uh, just calling calling each other on it in a in a uh, you know in an honest way. It's not always easy, but you just got to tell people if they're if they're doing something that uh, maybe they should be rethinking. Yeah, it's true. You know, we we wrote an editorial in the Canadian Journal of Surgery recently about morbidity and mortality mm-hmm. rounds, and that was really driven by, I think, concern across a lot of hospitals in Canada, and certainly discussion and feedback about, um, you know, the the risk in the in the current sort of state of 2020, and and of being accused as a bully or being accused as being over intense and mm-hmm. um, in, in those venues and. Uh, and to some extent, you know, you only know what you what you know unless you've been around to a lot of places. You know, to to put your M and M rounds into perspective, say across ten hospitals, is a hard thing to do unless you've been to ten hospitals. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that perspective and that that honesty and that um, you know the vulnerability, as you're saying, can can really go uh, be interpreted, I guess, sideways depending on who's in the room. So I, you know, the point of that that uh, that discussion was really to try and encourage everyone to, to revisit that and then recognize the importance as you're outlining in an M&M uh, process and realize it is really central to improving patient outcomes and, and patient-focused care. Yeah, yeah. I think at the end of the day, if we remind ourselves of that, then uh, I think people are a bit more willing to be honest about their own performance. And uh, I, I find a funny thing. I mean, I've I've had uh, two M&Ms I can think of in my short career, including in residency, where it was like a serious, like, 
this uh, probably shouldn't have happened or it's, the, you know, the dreaded complication mm-hmm. or whatever. But I, I kind of just laid it out as exactly what it was. There mm-hmm. was no sugarcoating or blaming on anybody else or or whatever. And, like, the funniest thing happened, you know, like all these guys that, that sometimes could be pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, suddenly they send you case reports of the exact same exact same complication or they say yeah it could have you know it's happened to me before or whatever like all of a sudden it i think when people are inclined to uh to uh to pick at your story a bit is when you're when you're when you're bullshitting when you're not yeah. telling the whole truth exactly. right so yeah exactly. not to anyway. belabor this point but i do also find one other aspect of this discussion really interesting in that it seems like in the military like contradictory to what you might think about the military has really given agency back to the person who's on the front line rather than as you say someone who's way up in the in the hierarchy and i and i I feel like in medicine it's the exact opposite like the medical student or the junior resident is totally kind of disempowered uh, from saying what they observe and giving their feedback um can you talk about that contradiction is that is that a real perception uh yeah that's a really good question mary first off i'm sorry you feel that way (laughs) (laughs) if you feel totally disempowered i I hope that improves over over time but uh um i guess uh i I would make the the minor distinction i I think it's becoming true for the whole military that uh you know people are empowered at all levels and stuff but i think historically it's always been the case for uh for like special forces so um there's there's a history um uh, you know um, of special forces being just that where you know leadership is down at the lowest level and initiative is encouraged and uh, certainly our our canadian special forces who've you know i've worked with but i've never been uh, a part of um are are that to a t i mean you've got um you know fairly junior non-commissioned guys that are making big time decisions on their own and um and speaking their minds to whoever's in charge and obviously i mean they're doing it in a respectful way but every everybody's value counts whereas the green the big green army as i like to call it so the more conventional army is probably a little bit more um more old school and hierarchical still so um and part of that is just a function of i think a, a lot of things but one is the the numbers so uh they're much bigger kind of formations and organizations so if if everybody down to the lowest level had a voice uh it kind of gets to be a little bit noisy and and be you know your your special forces guys have been selected uh as pretty smart and athletic uh you know and switched on people so their opinions not to undervalue the green guy, the green guys, but uh, the special forces guys will probably have more intelligent things to say too. So, um, so if, you know, in medicine, I, I think, I think uh, there's a bit of a shift happening. Um, I think here at uh, uh, Vancouver, we've become at Vancouver General, we, we've become pretty aware of perceived problems with that, and we're working on that as well to make them feel more empowered and stuff. Um, but I think everybody should have a voice and uh i also think the, the one the, the one other difference amir that comes to mind is that you know in in medicine so much of it is experiential and um um you know in the military you can have an officer who uh outranks a, a junior uh non-commissioned guy 
but who has fewer years and certainly way fewer deployments or something like that. And he's technically in charge. He or she would technically be in charge, but doesn't have as much experience. And I think that lends itself a lot better to, um, you know, getting feedback from the guy who maybe you outrank, but who has way more experience than you. So the analogy might be if the scrub nurse said, are you sure you don't want to use this instrument? You're not going to say, well, I'm the boss here. I'm the surgeon. Screw you. You might say, hey, that's a really good idea. Um, uh, whereas the med student and the first year resident, uh, they might occasionally see things that uh, make total sense, but oftentimes they just haven't seen those experiences. So it's a lot harder for them to, uh, to make those observations and, and, uh, comments that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And, uh, yeah, you definitely see the difference, I guess now as, as an R5, when you say, what about this? Then people do, uh, definitely take a step back or at least pretend to anyways. <laughs> um, for the trainees listening to this, if if someone wanted to, let's say, get involved in the military, uh, whether they're in surgical training or in some other uh, specialty, what are the options out there uh, in Canada? Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Uh, I think uh, if we're talking surgery uh, um, specifically, uh, I think, you know, if you have zero exposure to the military, probably a reasonable place to start just to get some sense for the, the milieu would just be to, to go to the a local reserve unit and see if you can uh, sign up and do some uh, reserve things. Unfortunately, we don't have a ton of uh, deployments right now, which is what is always most interesting to most people, I think, because um, uh, hanging out in a garrison somewhere in uh, in um, in an urban center is not going to be really that uh, exciting to most people. Certainly, that's not to me. Um, uh, I think the, to, to me, the cool stuff with the, about the military is is deployments. But um, uh, but in any case, it'll get you some idea for the the community. Um, and then if you're you know if it's something that you've um, really got an interest for, I think just talking to uh, people who are in or were in, uh, whether they're in the reserves or, or the regular force or have deployed or something, then, you know, just trying to track one down and ask uh, some questions. Uh, and if you're really keen on making the leap after doing some background uh, investigations, I, I um, you know, again, speaking to one of us, um, we can put you in contact with uh, the people who recruit specialists. Currently, um, uh, we're not... Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think we're recruiting trainees right now, uh, partly because we have the luxury of having a pretty good complement right now. But uh, uh, once you're done your training and you have a job, then uh, 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 you'd be eligible to be hired on as a um, as a general surgeon in the military, in the Canadian military. That's awesome, Phil. Well, we, we can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. Um, Again, we know how busy you are, and we really appreciate your insight and your thoughts. I know you have a heart out, so I'm just going to leave you with maybe one more question. Um, sure. Trying to ask it, you know, all, all the guests this, and, and sort of the, the shout out time. Is, is there any particular folks that you, you know, along the way, whether it's in the military side, or the family side, or the medicine side, or really steered, steered your path and and uh, um, that you credit? Um, yeah, lots. I mean. Um uh boy that's a big question uh, i'll try not to cry here <laughs> uh if i were like brad pitt i would have prepared this uh no um yeah. I'm, I'm just joking um a, a lot of people so uh 
I mean, a very supportive family, obviously. Uh, uh, for surgery specifically, I mentioned Hugh Taylor in uh, Winnipeg. He was kind of this uh, this guy that, uh, quite frankly, I, I had and still have a man crush on. Like, I was just like, this this dude is awesome. I, oh, I want to do what he does. Uh, here in Vancouver, um, uh, Nace and Morad, uh, just wonderful guys to work with when I was a fellow, and uh, they just totally took me under their wing and um, uh, hired me. So that was great. The rest of the colleagues are wonderful as well, but those two in particular kind of uh, stand out. Um, you know, on the military side of things, uh, uh, my brother, um, Sorry, uh, not a technical problem there. I just, um, trauma became pretty important when my uh, youngest brother died. He was killed in Afghanistan, so that was kind of the, um, probably the most uh, inspiring thing, I guess. Wanting to, you know, if I could save one soldier's life, I, I think I'd be... Um, it would make all the kind of training and everything else, all the work worthwhile. So, uh, if I had to distill it to one shout out, it'd be him. That's it. And my wife, she's been pretty amazing too. So there you go. No, thank thank you, Phil. That's the, that's a beautiful ending. You know, the, maybe the, the last word I would or last comment I would make would be very simply. You know, you, you and I and folks that do what we do on the trauma side, we often quote that it you know injury is the number one cause of death from really after one years old up to about forty five years old, and and it's such a neat skill set to have. And and I think you know guys like you who are going to continue to push the the envelope and and drive trauma care for the next you know, a couple of decades um, are really doing everybody a service, you know, beyond beyond the military folks for sure. And we, we thank you for it. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.